The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment they may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this. Understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Okay, so it's been a while, so let's have a look back at where we were in the book of Romans and what's going on at this point in the whole argument of the book. We started the last part of the book now, uh, from uh, chapters 1 to 11, we're looking at what the Christian message actually is. This is Paul's Rolls-Royce epistle, his premier work, the one in which he's put out more clearly than anything else what the Christian faith actually believes and stands for. And that goes on for the first 11 chapters, but then you get to chapters 12 and 16. And he wheels round on you, as he does in most of the letters he writes. Okay, if this is true, then you live like this. And he gives all sorts of practical stuff about how we need to live as a result. Just to, 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 to peek ahead and, and, and look back at the last section then from 12 to 16, what happens chapter by chapter? Chapter 12, we saw there are some key principles to bear in mind. If the gospel is true, if God has rescued us and given us a new life through Jesus, if we are now serving a coming king, somebody different from the, the, whatever it is that most people in the world are, 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 are uh, serving, then uh, what principles do we have to bear in mind? I saw that in chapter 12, the first thing that he says is, keep on offering your body as a living sacrifice. The body that you live with, day by day, that you go through the streets with, that talks and communicates with other people, that you take care of day by day. Give that as a sacrifice to God and do it again and again and again so that he can take it and use it as he wants. And we saw too that that won't happen unless your mind is renewed. 
It's by the renewing of your mind that you're able to do that and you become transformed into a new kind of a person. And the third principle is that you don't do it on your own. You're part of a community of Christians who all have different gifts from one another. We talked about the gifts that you, you're, you're given, and Paul talks about this in chapter 12, and how you should use them for the benefit of others, not just for yourself. And then the fourth thing and the final thing uh, is that at the end of chapter 12, Paul says you can be hypocritical in the way you love other people, or it can be genuine. And Christians will love other people, they'll accept other people, and they'll forgive other people when those other people are not the nicest people to be with. And so those are the key principles. Then he starts spelling it out, and that's where we are this morning. Chapter 13, he talks about living it out in society. We've got to be out there in the world with lots of people who don't know where we're coming from, who don't understand anything about our Jesus and, uh, and the things that we hold most dear. So how do we relate to them? Do we keep ourselves as a little holy huddle by ourselves? Do we look down in, in, in disapproval and condemnation on everybody else? Or how do we relate to people? That's what chapter 13 is all about. Chapter 14 talks about living it out in the church. People will have different opinions in the church about different things. Some will think that some things are okay to do, and other people think, oh, no, 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 if you could do that, you can't possibly be a Christian. So how do we live this love that we're talking about, this new kind of heart, in the church itself? And having talked about society and the church in chapter 15, he just talks about living it out in complete harmony. And he says, this is God's vision. This is what he wants for you. And in a few weeks, we'll get to that one and we'll have a look at the, the, the whole panorama of what God wants to do in bringing together different people like ourselves into one unity. And so chapter 16, he ends in the way that he often does, but he does it to the max this time. He always talks about people in his last chapter. People who are examples of the kind of stuff he's been talking about. And in chapter 16, he mentions no less than 30 other people, possibly more than that, but at least 30 different people are named. And most of them are great examples, of, brilliant examples of the kind of life that he says we've been talking about in chapters 12 to 16. But some people he warns against and says, don't have anything to do with them because they'll take you down the wrong path. Because Paul knows very well that however brilliantly he's argued and however stunning this letter is, and it is stunning, people are still studying it and writing books about it again and again, uh, 2,000 years on, it's one of the most incredible pieces of world literature, even if he's brilliant in what he's written, we are more influenced by other people than by ideas. And other people can make us behave and act in certain ways that might be good or might be bad. And so he says, here are the people to look at whom you really want to follow and copy and be like. And here are the people who, uh, <laughs> they'll take you down the garden path. So, that's where we're going. Now, how about chapter 13 we just read? Well, I think there are three things to notice in Romans chapter 13. And sum them up like this. First of all, we have a duty that we can't avoid. There is something we have to do, and there is no way around it, he says. Second, there's a debt that we can't pay off. And to the moment you die, you will be paying off this debt and paying it off and paying it off, and you'll never get to the end of it. And no, we are not talking about your mortgage. <laughs> We're talking about something quite different. And third, he says, there's a date you can't forget. There's a day that is coming that you need to bear in your mind all the time because it's unavoidable. It will arrive. And everything you do now should be lived in the light of that coming day. I remember when we got married and uh, uh, for a few months beforehand, our thoughts were taken up almost completely 
with what was going to happen to us and what needed to be done and what the arrangements were going to be and so on. But I've got a brain that's like a sieve. I really have. So one or two occasions when I slipped up, and I will remember having my phone up, uh, a well-known evangelist who had booked me to come to a meeting saying, um, uh, sorry, um, I know I took that booking, but can I cancel it? Because that is actually my wedding day. And he thought that was uproariously funny. I'm not so sure Anthea was through, but I'd, at least I cancelled it, didn't I? And we got out of that. But, you know, that day was so important. That's the one thing I should have remembered, and I didn't. But anyway, there we go. So, okay, let's talk about these three things. First of all, a duty you can't avoid. What's that? Well, he says you have to live as a good citizen of the society that you live in. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can live in an insulated way from the rest of the world. Everyone must submit himself, he starts, to the governing authorities. At the end of chapter 12, the last thing he said was this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. So the question he wants to ask now is, okay, how do you do that when you live in Rome in the mid-50s of the first century? This is the Emperor Nero. It's a pretty good picture of him because people have tried electronically to work out what some of these old guys looked like. You know, you see a statue and a, 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 a plinth on its plinth from centuries ago, and probably it's had its ears knocked off and its nose and things like that. Hard to work out what the guy actually looked like. But this looks quite convincing, doesn't it? And this is what Nero, at age 20, looked like when he was the most important person in the world. What was going on when the Book of Romans was written? Well, several things. Nero was emperor at age 20 after the sudden death of Claudius. And it looked very suspicious. And Roman historians like Suetonius, Tacitus and so on all said that Nero's mother, Agrippina, who was a consummate plotter responsible for at least 10 murders, probably 12, uh, Agrippina had been responsible. She'd only married Claudius so that she could get her son on the throne. And uh, she'd only got her son on the throne so that she could control him like a puppet. And only two years after Romans was written, Agrippina was murdered on the orders of Nero. But that's, that's an interesting family. So all of this stuff was going on in the background. You can imagine Christians looking at this and hearing the rumours and thinking, do we really have to serve these people? I mean, how, how Christian can you get? Claudius' real son died in the same way just four months after Claudius died. Even more suspicious. You see, he had a son called Germanicus, who should have been emperor. But then, first of all, Claudius died, and then Germanicus died. And Nero was definitely responsible for that one. So it's all looking very murky. Nero, at this point, when Roman was written, knew about Christians. We find that out a few years later, and he starts persecuting them. Not the Jews, just Christians. So he knew a bit about Christians. He had realised they were different from Jews. Some of them were Gentiles to start with. They were from a non-Jewish background. So this was a secret society living in the slum part of the city who were spreading everywhere, and he knew all about them. Jewish people were back in the city unofficially. You might remember that the Emperor Claudius expelled them from Rome in AD 49 because they kept on quarrelling. <laughs> That may have been because uh, the Jews and the Christians were having uh, a bit of a disagreement. It could have been for other reasons. But in any case, Claudius said in AD 49, I can't stand these Jews. Just get rid of them. Then when he died suddenly five years later, the Jews started creeping back into the city. Nobody said they could come. It was just that Claudius wasn't around, so it was okay. So many of the Christians to whom Paul is writing are in a fairly uneasy situation. They're in Rome, but should they be in Rome? And their legal position is very much in doubt. 
Even those who've been recognised will be treated as non-residents of the city. Now that's bad because in the old days, before they were thrown out by Claudius, they were residents, so they paid fairly low taxes. But coming in as foreigners, they had to pay massive taxes. Some of them were thinking, well, we've had it with the Roman Empire. We don't owe no allegiance to these people whatsoever. Also, respect for the authorities hadn't been high anyway. It wasn't just Nero and his mum who were a, a nasty piece of work, but also Caligula, the previous emperor. Well, ooh, some of the stories I could tell you about him would not be fit for a Sunday morning service. Much more besides. Messalina, oh, even worse, the, 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 the first wife of Claudius, who was notorious for her exploits with literally hundreds of men. Interesting situation. And so public respect for the emperor or the emperor's family and the governing authority had gone down and down and down over the years since the emperor Augustus, who really had been a good job. In some parts of the empire, as a result, people had stopped paying taxes. They weren't paying taxes to Rome anymore because they could get away with it. And even in Rome, actually, some kinds of taxes were very much in dispute. That's why, and you see what Paul says in chapter 13, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. And you think, well, what's the difference, taxes or revenue? The difference is that taxes are direct taxes. When they come along and demand 1% or more of your income every year, that's, that's the way they tax people. But uh, revenue were indirect taxes. Taxes you paid, um, oh, a bit like parking fines or something like that now. And it's taxes that could be slapped on for incidental reasons. VAT on, they didn't have VAT, but that kind of thing. And so uh, people would pay their normal taxes, but the revenue, many people had just stopped paying. It wasn't very effectively collected, so they, oh, we can get away with this. So Christians had to ask themselves, do we get away with it? <laughs> you know, Because we don't support the Roman Empire, is it fair and just to keep our taxes back? And Paul hears no. So all of this was going on. And also in Judea, back in Jerusalem, where many of the Christians found their inspiration, there were people who were starting to revolt against the Roman Empire. And in AD 70, just a few years down the road, it was going to be so serious that a full-scale revolt had to be put down by the Romans marching into Jerusalem, burning the temple and uh, devastating the countryside. So all of this was going on in the background. And when Paul is saying, be good citizens, that, that's really going on there. What's he trying to do? Well, I think he's trying to keep the Christians from extremism. You see, there were people in Rome, in the Christian church, who were probably saying one of two wrong things, and they were pointing in different directions. There would be Christians who were saying, well, if Jesus is Lord, the great Christian phrase, then Caesar isn't. Maybe it's time for some armed rebellion or a bit of rioting, or at least keeping my taxes in my pocket rather than paying them to the authorities. And Paul's saying, no, that's wrong. On the other hand, there were people who were saying, no, Christian faith is a private, personal, spiritual thing. It has nothing to do with the real world. And again, Paul was saying, no, you've got to interact with society. You can't just have your faith private and in a box. If Jesus is Lord, that means he's Lord over the whole of the earth. And so the way you vote, the way you pay your taxes, the way you deal as a citizen with the rest of society, that is all dead important. And uh, it's, it's still possible to take these attitudes today, isn't it? To say that we need to change the society because Jesus is Lord and therefore we've got to be thoroughly involved in politics. And you can see the way in which, from different political perspectives, left and right, 
That's been a, a, a route that Christians have sometimes gone down to say, we must impose the rule of God over this country. We must do what God wants here politically. And often, always actually, that ends up being not what God wants at all. On the other hand, you've got some people who've gone into a kind of private world in which, well, Christianity is a nice, nice kind of personal experience for me, but we don't need to go shout about it or take it out anywhere else. And that certainly happened in Rome in the first and second centuries, despite Paul's writing. So Paul's trying to keep them away from extremism. What do you do, though? I mean, as a Christian, you're living in a country where probably it's not ruled completely the way you would like it to be. There are always going to be things that politicians are saying and doing that you don't like. And that you, more importantly, feel Jesus wouldn't like. So if they're ruling in a way which is unjust and oppressive and wrong, then how do you put up with that? What should you do? This is where I bring in one of my great heroes, a 17th century Scotsman called Samuel Rutherford. In 1644, he had a problem. He was becoming a distinguished uh, professor of divinity. If you think you've never heard of him, you've probably heard the old hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, uh, 19 verses of it, which was written as a poem by Anne Ross Cousin in the 19th century, composed of some of the last things Rutherford said as he was dying. And, O oh Christ, he is the fountain, the deep sweet well of love, the springs on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There the ocean's fullness his mercy does expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And everybody under the age of eight is looking and saying, what? Never heard of that. But okay, if you have heard of the hymn anyway, that's, that's the guy that Rutherford was. He was a tremendous preacher, a wonderful um, uh, pastor and, uh, uh, and leader. He was also a small church leader as well. I mean, he wasn't just an international figure. He was somebody who really cared about the little uh, parish which he, he pastored uh, just north of Carlisle uh, called Anworth. And uh, there's a verse of the hymn that's not often sung which goes like this. Fair Anworth by the Solway, to me thou still art dear, e'en from the brink of heaven I drop for thee a tear. Oh, if one soul from Anworth meet me at God's right hand, twill be two heavens for me in Emmanuel's land. You can see why that's not often sung anywhere. But also you can see the kind of heart of the guy. He was somebody who was all out to see God uh, in charge of, of, of his country and his people any way he could. And he wrote a book in 1644 called Lex Rex, which means the law is the king. <laughs> and that was at a time when the king was trying to force things on the church in Scotland that he never should have. It was just a start of several centuries of oppression by the English, but that's another issue. Now, what was going on was that uh, the, the, the government was saying certain things had to happen, and Rutherford thought it was unbiblical and it was wrong. And so he wrote this book, which is still regarded as one of the great books uh, about Christianity and politics, uh, to say, um, this is not the way it works. This is what, he, he deals with Romans 13 a lot, which is why I'm mentioning it. And he says, Romans 13 gives you a picture like this. There is God. There is the power, the crown, the magistrates, the king, the king however the system is, same thing. And uh, there are the people. And God gives the authority to ruling power. Romans 13 makes that clear, doesn't it? There is no authority except what is given by God. All of these people who set themselves up to lead societies and cultures and things like that, they are only there because God has given them permission to be there. And so they're responsible to God for what they do. But they couldn't do it unless, says Rutherford, you also have people who give their allegiance. And so in kind of three-way contract, 
God makes a contract with the power that, yes, you will have this authority, and the people make a contract of allegiance with the power. Yes, as far as you do what God has entitled you to do, then we will follow you. And of course, being painful, all of the powers do wrong things. Uh, oops, excuse me, I've gone too far. And Rutherford said this, there is no lawful power to do evil. In other words, when the power starts doing things that are wrong, then we withdraw our allegiance. Now, how much you withdraw your allegiance is a matter for judgment, depending on the situation. Rutherford is very clear that uh, you follow the, 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 the authorities as far as you possibly can, seeing in them a power which God has bestowed upon, uh, uh, upon your life. However, when uh, an authority becomes a source of oppression and evil, uh, Rutherford says it's, it, it's, it's no longer from God, it's from that old serpent, the devil. <laughs> and so it's justifiable, in fact it's necessary for Christians to object. Francis Schaeffer, the Christian philosopher, said this when he was writing about Rutherford. God has ordained the state as delegated authority. It is not autonomous. It has no power in itself. It all comes from God, as Paul says here in Romans 13. The state is to be an agent of justice by punishing the wrongdoer and to protect the good in society. That's what Paul says here, isn't it? When it does the reverse, it has no proper authority. It is then a usurped authority. It's taking the authority of God. And as such, it becomes lawless and is tyranny. Since tyranny is satanic, not to resist it is to resist God. And to resist tyranny is to honour God. It follows from Rutherford's thesis that citizens have a moral obligation to resist unjust and tyrannical government. We have an obligation when the government is oppressing and distorting and spoiling God's truth all over the place to stand out against it. While we must always be subject to the office of the magistrate, we are not to be subject to the man in that office who commands that which is contrary to the Bible. And so that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 13. Now, always obey the law all the time, but obey the law insofar as it represents the pattern that God wants to be there in society. And sometimes that leads to tough, tough decisions. You think of the great German theologian, for instance, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a lifelong pacifist until he became con uh, determined in the middle of the Second World War that uh, there was no way that uh, peace would ever come unless Hitler were removed. And he, in the end, was executed for his part, very minor part, but still a part, in the plot to assassinate Hitler. Christians assassinating people? Was that right or was it wrong? All you can say is that for him it was a very, very, very difficult decision indeed to make. And he went the way he did, simply because, as a Christian, he believed that was what God was telling him to do. Some of us would disagree. Some of us would agree. These decisions are never easy. But the basic principle is what Paul's talking in Romans 13. We have to be loyal to the authorities who are in charge of our life, pay them the taxes that are due, until it becomes absolutely impossible to support them as agents of God's truth. Okay. So second... A debt you can't pay off. What's this? Well, Paul says, oh, nobody, anything. Pay all of your debt. Whether it's respect or honour or whatever you, you, you ought to be giving people, give it to them. And obviously, at the moment, lots of fun is being made about the, the uh, fact that uh, Downing Street is a great Airbnb. You know, it's wonderful for short stays. And uh, uh, there's a lot of disrespect for politicians to, going on. 
We need to remember as Christians that we are supposed to pay what we owe, and that means respect and honour to those who are in positions of respect and honour as well. doesn't mean we agree with everything they do. doesn't mean we can't enjoy a joke at their expense. But at the same time, it means we respect the importance of the office they've got, and we don't just trash it completely. However, he says, there is one debt that you can't pay off. Owe no man anything except the debt of love to one another. And he says, whoever loves fulfills the whole law. And uh, the message puts it like this. I think this is a, a understandable version. When you love others, you complete what the law has been after all along. It's not that those laws don't count anymore. The law still counts. God's law, the way he wants us to live, that's important. But the way you fulfill it is by just showing love to everybody you meet and everybody you're concerned with. And love never thinks certain things. Love, first of all, doesn't think, I've done enough. There has to be a limit. No, says Paul, this is a debt that you will never pay off. You'll be paying it as long as you live. You'll be doing loving things for other people until the day you finally die. It's going to go on right through your life. Love has no limits. Of course, you have to be wise. You don't just give your money to anybody that asks you for it or have anything by, by lunchtime. You, you have to think sometimes that love is tough love. And sometimes to say, no, you can't have this because it's not good for you is a good thing to do as well. But whatever you do towards other people has to be a loving thing. And the uh, second thing that you never think, okay, I'll help, but only because people are watching. <laughs> There's a lot of love can be like that out in the world there. We do noble things. We invite Ukrainian refugees into our houses, and then three months later, we try to get rid of them again. Um, it can be just because other people are watching us, and we want the credit for being loving. No, says Paul in chapter 12, love must be without hypocrisy. Remember that? It's got to be real. It's got to come from the heart. So we help people at our own cost when people are not watching. We don't let our right hand know what our left hand's doing and vice versa. We don't even think about it. We don't build a little reputation for ourselves in our heads. We just do it. We just keep on loving. And the third thing is, um, love never thinks this. So if I'm loving, I don't have to bother keeping the rest of the law. Great. So I don't need to worry if I sleep with people or I should be sleeping with or if I, I uh, keep things that don't belong to me or whatever. It's all right as long as I'm loving. There was a philosophy back in the 60s. It uh, was all about that. Um, situation morality, uh, situation ethics, said that as long as you're doing the loving thing, the rules don't apply. And so, that, of course, that led to thousands and thousands of uh, uh, young boys who were amateur philosophers putting pressure on their girlfriends and saying, well, if you really love me, <laughs> you'd sleep with me, wouldn't you? Because the rules didn't apply anymore. No, Paul's not saying that. He's saying all of these rules apply just as they have done. You've got to be honest. You've got to be loving. You've got to be temperate. You've got to be chaste. All of those things are, are important. But love is the fulfilling of the law. As the message you know, quotation puts it, it takes you to where the law, it, the vision of life that the law actually has. The only way of fulfilling those laws is not to think, I must keep this law and that law and that law. That's cold and it doesn't work. The only way of fulfilling God's law is to love other people. Because when you do that, then you will do the, the right thing in situation after situation. So those are two other things. We've got to fill in the third one, though, before we finish, which is this. A date you can't forget. What's this? Well, this is where Paul goes on from that uh, to say, um, 
Do this understanding the present time. In other words, if you really are going to live a loving life, if you really are going to fulfill the law in this way, what you've got to do is understand the present time and understand that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. I do a series of uh, lectures on Ecclesiastes in several Bible colleges uh, the year. It's coming up again in a couple of weeks. And uh, um, one of the things I always say when we're talking about, uh, you know, the brevity of life and all of those other things that Ecclesiastes talks about is, I just want you to remember that since you got up this morning, you are one day closer to the cemetery than you were yesterday. And you, you always get to say it, that's from the audience groans and, oh, thanks very much, John. That's really inspiring. Thank you so much. But it's true, isn't it? Every day you live, you're a day closer to something else. But it's not just the cemetery. Paul says our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The day of Jesus' return gets closer by one day every time you wake up in the morning. That is quite something to think about, isn't it? Now you might think, hang on a minute, our salvation is nearer. I thought I was saved already. And we ought to fix in because we've skated, skated past it a little bit in Roman once or twice already. But Paul talks about salvation in three tenses. Yes, you have been saved. You were saved when you became a Christian from the penalty of sin. When you became a follower of Jesus and you said, Jesus is Lord, that was when it started. You were saved from the penalty of sin. You will never have to go to hell because of your sins. When Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. That was a Greek word, tetelastai. It's been dealt with. It's swept out of the balances. It's completely done. So there is no question that you are uh, unsaved if you've accepted Jesus as Lord. You have been saved. But confusingly, there are other passages where Paul talks about being saved. And he says that's still going on now. And if you've been saved from the penalty of sin, God's wrath in the past, you still need to be saved from the power of sin moment by moment. Because you still get tempted. You still have urges coming up from you don't where inside you that would take you down the wrong path again and again. And so you need to pray every day, God, make me a living sacrifice. Renew my mind. Make me different so that you can live free from the power of sin. And God saves you from it day by day as you live through your life. You're being saved. And then finally, you've got a third tense, which is what's being spoken about here. And that's the future tense, that you will be saved one of these days from the very presence of sin. It won't be around anymore to bother you. And that's a fantastic vision you get at the end of the book of Revelation where all tears are wiped away. There's no, 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 no suffering. There's no pain. There's no death. All of those things are taken away. Is the day when you will be saved from the very presence of the thing that despoils and oppresses God's civilization, sin itself. So you were saved. You're being saved, and you will be saved. And different verses talk about different things, and I was going to quote them, but we're short of time, so I won't say that. But you'll see that come up again and again in the New Testament. So, okay, if our salvation, this final salvation, we're with the Lord, when sin is no longer going to spoil anything in our lives, when his, his great vision for the future is finally complete, if that's getting closer, what should we be like? And this is the last thing I want to say. Paul says three times in these last verses in Greek, we should, we should, we should. And then he changes to you must and says two must things as well. So what should we do? 
Well, I'll put these slightly differently just to, to try to work out what they're actually saying. But the first one here um, is, do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. The night is nearly over. So we should let us put aside the deeds of darkness. And I've translated that, make a break with the night. You see, we're all born in the darkness. We're all born separated from God. And by a miracle, the light is broken into our lives if we're Christians, and we've got a whole new life. But things hang on, don't they? Urges, desires, things we've always done, bad patterns that we fall into again and again in our thoughts and our actions. Make a break, says Paul. Cast off the deeds of darkness. It's a violent word. Have nothing to do with them any longer. Don't let them creep in around the edges. Make a break with the night. Second, go protected. He says, and put on instead the armour of light. Put on a whole new set of clothes. Well, you know, in, in the evenings when we've been talking about Colossians and books like that, we've seen Paul use this image again and again. That we're taking off one set of clothes and then putting on another one. <laughs> but here he talks about armour. He says, when you put on Jesus, when you put on the new personality that God has got for you, when you live in the new way, it's armour. It helps you get through the day. And you go into the day protected. You know, millions of people have a dream every night about standing in the street with no clothes on. And it's one of the most horrible things you can think about because you're completely vulnerable, defenseless. And people are walking about saying, you know, look, that guy's got no clothes on. And it's just a dream and you wake up, unless it's a television advert. Um, you know the one I'm talking about. Um, and it's, it's a very, very common dream. You, your clothes are part of your protection. And when you're wearing armour, you're even super protected. So wake up, says Paul, put on your armour and go protected. And the third thing is we should live in reality, not fantasy. He says, um, let us behave decently. Well, that's a very tepid translation, but it will do. Walk properly. <laughs> the way you do in the daylight, he says, as in the daytime, not in... Uh, Orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and debauchery, dissension and jealousy. All of these things, he says, happen at night. And, you, I mean, you can see, uh, it's quite exciting, isn't it, when, when you're out at night. And uh, you see all these, these kids going to a, a nightclub or going clubbing or whatever. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the light is kind of intermittent. And uh, uh, under the street lights, it's, it's dark and it's romantic and it's different. And it feels good. In raw, raw they didn't have streetlights, and the dark really was dark. And some of the stuff they get up to doing overnight, you just need to read the historians, was pretty dubious, to put it mildly. And when Paul's talking to orgies and drunkenness and all sorts of things, he's not going over the top, he's describing exactly what used to happen. Now you'd see the same people the next morning, walking about quite soberly, <laughs> looking very decent, and you think, I saw what you were doing in the dark night before. And Paul says we should be like the daytime, not the nighttime moments. In other words, don't live in things that take you away into a fantasy life where, you know, everything is, 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 is just about you, but live in the way you would live in the daytime. And he talks about all of these things that people use to, to, to get away from reality, drunkenness, orgies, immorality, debauchery, even dissension and jealousy. Falling out with other people can be a way of convincing yourself that you're right, really, and they're all wrong. And so he says, get rid of that and walk as in the daytime. And then he says the two things you must do. Rather, verse 14, this we're finished. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Let people see Jesus when they see you. The clothes you wear make a statement about you. And if you are clothed with Jesus as you walk around, then that's the first thing people are going to see. Let people see Jesus in us and leave no space for evil to occupy. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the evil nature. Don't just let it get into your thinking. Don't imagine what it would be like to do something, or you might well end up doing. Don't harbour thoughts that are going to grip your mind and take it off in the wrong direction and prevent you from seeing life the way it really is. Just get rid of those things, but clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what people see in you. And that, says Paul, is how you ought to act in society. Next week, we'll look at how you ought to act with your brothers and sisters in the church. But that's enough for one morning. Let's just pray very, very quickly. And then, are you, are you coming back up, Kev? Or are we, you are. Good. Okay. Well, very quick. Pray. Heavenly Father, help us be the key of people in whom people can see Jesus. Help us make a break with the darkness, which is decisive and real. And help us live for you in such a way that people see in us folks who are good citizens, but they're marching to the beat of a different drummer at the same time, whose lives show them what Christian, what uh, people ought to be like in God's world. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.